Welcome to Episode 5 of Shelter, a podcast series from Rutgers University, Colab Arts, and the New Brunswick Theological Seminary. I'm Scott Gurian. And I'm Diana Molina. If you've been listening since the beginning, you know that we start each show by saying this is a program examining housing insecurities in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the role academic and religious institutions can play in partnering with the community to seek solutions. In our first few episodes, we focus largely on detailing the problem by asking the question, what does it mean to shelter in place when you have no shelter? Now for the rest of the series, we're going to turn to the second part of our mission statement and consider how academic institutions and community organizations can work with people in the community to find ways to improve the housing crisis. That's right, Diana. To give some context, there's this long-standing problem, at least in the nonprofit sector and the world of NGOs, where outside organizations sometimes parachute into crisis situations with teams of aid workers and so-called experts. These groups might have the best of intentions, but they may not be completely familiar with the actual needs and desires of the local residents who they're purportedly trying to help. So there's this massive disconnect, and the voices and opinions of those on the receiving end of the assistance are all too often ignored. On today's episode, we're going to look at some examples here in central New Jersey of folks taking a different approach, partnering and collaborating with the people they serve and elevating the voices of individuals from underrepresented communities to achieve better results. Let's start with Osamiri Sprowall, who's an artist-in-residence for Colab Arts, one of the organizations behind this podcast. As part of the Shelter Project, Osamiri has been facilitating virtual workshops and maker kits for New Brunswick's unhoused and vulnerable communities. We'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But first, here's Osamiri's story. My name is Osamiri Sproul. I use they, them pronouns in English. I am a curator, a slam poet, a teaching artist, and a national homeless rights activist specializing in working with LGBT youth, primarily of color. I'm an Afro-Indigenous person. My family on my mom's side is Louisiana Creole. I'm mobility impaired, I'm disabled, which is a huge part of my activism and also my artistry. I came out as trans when I was maybe like 18. I had come out to my grandmother and that was awful. And I ran away from home and I started couch surfing and I had no idea what the hell I was going to do. I started getting involved in homeless rights activism locally because the organization I was getting services through had what we call a YAB, which is a youth action board. So a YAB is basically like a collection of young people who either are presently homeless or have lived expertise of homelessness, organizing ourselves to do work either at the local level or at the national level to promote and create change and share our own experiences and expertise to make impact. I specialize at this point in policy. I've supported and like reviewed legislation for like people in Congress and like different organizations that collect data, et cetera, if they need someone who actually is the group of people they're trying to interview and work with, we basically step in through the organizations that we work through um, and connect with people. So I've advised HUD and big national 
organizations on how to actually competently speak to trans people and gather information from us and how to make policies that actually are good for us from our own perspective, not just people trying to guess what would maybe be good for trans people. It's almost like if you talk to people who are what they are, they usually can tell you what at least they individually think is a good idea, if not potentially speak to a larger experience. Policy should always be informed by experience. And there's a horrible problem in this country where people making policies usually are not qualified in a lived experience way to try to help other people have, you know, like legal protections or defensive mechanisms that would properly serve their communities. When Osamiri isn't helping craft policy, they're busy expressing themselves through slam poetry. They've been performing ever since high school and say that all that they've been through has given them plenty of inspiration. People with interesting stories tend to make good art. And I don't know if you've seen art that we've made, but it tends to be freaking awesome. It's hard, in my opinion, to meet artists who like haven't been through something. Not to like romanticize, quote unquote, the struggling artist, but I do think a lot of people's art comes from the love of community and also just the need to explain and express, if not for other people, then just for myself, what I have experienced. As a creative individual with roots in so many historically marginalized groups, Osamiri brings an authentic perspective to all the art they create, which if you look around is actually sort of rare. I mean, to the extent that homeless individuals or folks from the transgendered or disabled communities are represented at all in society, culture, or the media, they're often portrayed by actors or other individuals who aren't actually from those groups. And, says Osamiri, They're usually done at varying levels of disappointing because we're not the people making art. Like I said, lived expertise, it should apply to art making too. I feel like it's similar to when you eat food that's other people trying to make a cultural dish of yours and you're like, "Mm, I mean, I'll eat it, I guess. It's kind of like that feeling. It's like when I eat gumbo above the Mason-Dixon line and it's not complete garbage. I'm like, all right, all right, fine. It's that emotion. Which leads us to why we decided to bring Osamiri on board to work with us. What I'm doing as a part of this project is curating basically an exhibit of poetry, photography, and mixed media art pieces that will be made by the homeless communities of New Brunswick. Kind of looking at safety, security, a person's internal understanding of like home and community as it relates to moving through the experience of being homeless. What are they going through? What is that like? Where is home? You know, where are you grounded if you're able to be? And also kind of what does it look like coming out of that space? It really was important to me to give people the luxury of the space and time to really think through that feeling and really process that emotion through creative means. If you're a member of the unhoused or housing vulnerable community, we encourage you to visit our website at shelternj.org to find out how to get your own maker kit, watch Osamiri's workshop videos, respond to the prompts, and submit your original poetry, photography, or artwork, as well as to see the contributions other people have made as part of this project. Osamiri agrees it's important to have accurate representations of traditionally marginalized groups, but In the end, they're not making their art for the larger culture or society. That's not their target audience. 
If other communities benefit from my art, that's fine. It's not my priority. My priority is other homeless people. My priority are other black people. My priority are other indigenous people, or maybe even people who are Afro-indigenous and don't feel comfortable using that term to describe themselves. I was in Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I did a show for them. And there was one Creole girl in the audience and I did a poem that I wrote about being Creole and she literally came up to me and thanked me and tried to give me a hug because she was just like, oh my God, thank you so much because people don't talk about us. They don't know about us. Other people in the audience came up to me and thanked me for my work. But what was meaningful for me was that person in my community hearing something that she had never heard about herself. I won't forget that experience. At the end of the day, I'm gonna be a black person, I'm gonna be an indigenous person, I'm gonna be a queer crip, I'm gonna be all the things that I am, no matter how other people feel about it, I still exist. And in existing as a person who is a creator, I seek to create. I seek to create a space where I exist. That's really it. If you're trying to fix the housing crisis, it's important that those most directly impacted by the situation, namely the unhoused, have a voice and a seat at the table in crafting solutions. An artistic expression is one way that people can begin to reclaim their narrative. Another is influencing how they're portrayed in the media, but that's a much more difficult task. You see, ownership of news outlets across the country has been consolidated into the hands of a smaller and smaller group of large corporations in recent years. Meanwhile, community-based journalists have become a dying breed. More and more, we're finding that News tends to have a national focus, but the issues that are influencing, affecting people locally in New Jersey and elsewhere are not really being reported. David Love is an instructor in the Rutgers Journalism and Media Studies Department. He says that while things have gotten worse in recent years, this problem is nothing new. I'm just reminded of the late 60s where the Kerner Commission report focused on the urban rebellions taking place throughout the country. And they wanted to understand why there was so much frustration in communities of color. And one thing that they concluded was that people, well, obviously people in black and brown communities knew what was going on, but so-called mainstream communities did not understand the issues facing the black community. And that was because the news media were not reporting on these issues of police brutality, economic deprivation, other crises. You know, those who were in charge of these news organizations really didn't care about it and they didn't have any frame of reference. So unfortunately, you're seeing a lot of that now where Even though there's more reporting on social justice issues, very often it's lacking a nuance, it's lacking context, it's lacking depth and breadth. But we're saying, why don't we just make our own media? I believe ultimately it's the only way we will get an accurate coverage of the subject matter that is important to us is if we just do it ourselves. To help 
fill the gap in local coverage, David and his colleague, fellow Rutgers journalism professor Todd Wolfson, run what they call a social justice journalism lab. NJ Spark is a program where students take a class and they work on a media project. They can write op-eds, they can do film production, they can do social media, they can do investigative reporting, but they just don't do that. They also work with community groups, activists, people in the community who are dealing with particular issues that impact poor communities, communities of color, communities that traditionally are not the focus of a lot of the media that we see these days. What we do is every semester we have representatives of different groups actually come and have a roundtable where they engage with students, talk about the issues that they're uh, working on. There may be a semester where we focus on criminal justice. Another time we may focus on environmental justice or poverty, prison industrial complex. And students will go and meet with organizations or speak with them on the phone, interview their members or their leadership. It's not just an issue of giving a secondhand account of the problems in society, but actually going straight to the people who are directly impacted by these issues and really amplifying their voices. And just to stress how unique this is, under normal circumstances, a journalist working on a story about a particular topic might simply reach out to a relevant community organization to get a comment. But with NJ Spark, the student reporters actually partner with the folks they're covering, effectively serving as their advocates. I think that very often students in journalism school are taught that you can't have an opinion. In some other courses, they might be told, well, you know, you have to be fair and balanced and present two sides of the story. Well, my argument is, you know, there might be some cases where there's only one side of a story or maybe there are a hundred sides of a story. But what I do know is that we want to center economic inequality and those who are impacted by injustice. I think that it can really be a potent and effective tool to use journalism in this way. And in a sense, I think it really speaks to the traditional role of journalism, you know, in addition to holding people in power accountable, holding government accountable. There's also that matter of focusing on those issues that are plaguing the weak, the vulnerable and the powerless. And actually what we're doing is we are empowering people from those communities to actually tell their own stories. Finally, on today's episode, we wanted to profile another awareness-raising resource created by a member of our community, 
It comes to us from theater artist and game designer Mason Beggs, who's collaborated in the past with Collab Arts, one of the organizations behind this show. Dan Swern from Collab uh, had asked me to do an artist response to the Shelter Project when that was first starting up. And I became really interested over the course of the pandemic of the intersection between performance and gaming, partially because I'm a huge gamer geek and I just was selfish and wanted to see what that intersection was, but also because I got really burnt out with Zoom theater readings in a digital landscape at the beginning of the pandemic. And I just really wanted to explore other avenues of performance, connectivity, and interaction. So I asked him if I could do a gaming response as opposed to a theater piece. And he said yes. And it sort of evolved into something bigger than I think either of us were expecting. And here we are. Mason spent a bunch of time reading through the transcripts of oral history interviews we conducted with unhoused community members as part of the Shelter Project. We featured some of them in previous episodes of this podcast, and they're posted on our website at shelternj.org if you'd like to check them out. From those conversations, he noticed certain recurring themes, which he incorporated in an interactive board game. The idea is that it could be used as a teaching tool for people to put themselves in the shoes of someone experiencing housing or economic insecurity and learn to make difficult decisions based on the cards they're dealt. And Scott, you and I actually had a chance to be some of the first people to test out this new game. Yeah, that's right. The three of us hopped on a Zoom call a number of months ago, and Mason walked us through how it works. So in each, uh, game players will choose a different objective card, which unto itself will have different goals and ways of scoring you points throughout the game that relate to that objective. So you each have two different player mats that are preset with objective cards and shelter cards, which we'll get to in a second. Scott, why don't you play Family Relations? And Diana, why don't you play Inner Peace? Sure. So with Rebuild Family Relations, you will get points for a day at the park, a family dinner, and homework help. And all of these are scored in different ways using different sort of tactics and resources that you'll accumulate throughout the game. And the point of this is that a lot of people who live in poverty or who lack permanent housing, one of the issues they face is relations with their families that they maybe don't have close family members who are willing or able to take them in, or there's been some divorce or some other kind of problem between family members. Yeah, I found it interesting in the oral histories that for as much as they are dealing with financially, sort of mental health, sometimes substance abuse, a lot of them were really focused on, I simplified it down to rebuild family relations, but really interpersonal dynamics between family members. Many of them have kids, and as opposed to you know, being stressed about their financial situation, they're stressed about kids Zooming from home during COVID and having to do homework help with them. They both are stressed by that, but also feel a sense of reward and feel like they're connecting with their children over these very simple things. Yeah. Okay. So our second player, Diana, is going to be playing Inner Peace. Um, Throughout the oral histories, the idea of mental health permeated and different individuals were attempting to cope with that in different ways, Uh, some of them through physical activity, some of them through really creating a personal, I term it sanctuary, but really creating peace at home in whatever way they can. And so the inner peace 
player will score points from finding their center, from creating a sanctuary at home, from physical activity labeled morning jog here, and through meditation and mindfulness. Those will be your four ways to score points, Diana. In addition to objective cards, Mason explained that there are three tracks for shelter, pressure, and perseverance. Perseverance is sort of like a, if you have a really bad role and you just can't do anything, you can still get benefit from it. I created the perseverance track to sort of embed the idea that even if you don't achieve things you want to in this moment, you still put in the effort and there's still some sense of satisfaction from that narratively. So I'm going to roll our digital dice for you. So we have a three, a four. The game is played in 12 rounds, representing the 12 months of the year. And just like in real life, each month, you've got to figure out how to pay the rent. Well, this is kind of tough. And you can only pay rent by giving up a food or giving up a home, which is like care products, what you have around your home. So it's rough. If you have to pay rent and you're running low on funds, it's going to come from somewhere. Well, I feel like I need food to live. Given the option, I would rather give up some essentials. Maybe that means not having as much heat in the winter or air conditioning in the summer, but whatever it takes, I guess. So I I will give up my home token. You sounded so sad when you said that. (laughs) I'd be sad. (laughs) We didn't have time to play the entire 12 rounds, but we got a pretty good sense of the game. It was challenging, and Mason said that was exactly the point. As the game goes on throughout the months, there's a lot more event cards that structurally add more pressure, and you do have to decide at times, do I want to put my resources into getting rid of pressure, or do I want to let this pressure stack up on top of me and see if I can handle it? You know, it becomes much more, not necessarily more complex, but a bit more tense, but that happens. I mean, that's part of you know, these individual stories. And what are some of the sources of pressure that people face? Some of the small things are community events where someone in the community needs help that's going to take your time, that's going to take maybe physical exertion. But in doing that, you're not going to sort of feel the pressure or the guilt of not helping out other individuals in need. There's other things that are as simple as having a landlord provide you with really awful appliances that are just constantly going down. Um, And do you want to have those conversations and put the energy into getting them fixed? Or do you want to, you know, place that aside and let the pressure build up? Down to, this popped up in the oral histories, the idea of FOMO, fear of missing out. The idea of what am I doing with my life? How do I feel about maybe lost years? And am I going to deal with that either through therapy or my own centeredness or am I going to just let that eat at me? So there's a lot of different avenues or or ways that this pressure can start to come in and affect the player. While turning the real life stories of economically struggling people into a game might sound like you're trivializing their experiences, it actually gave us a small sense of the tough choices people have to make when they're strapped for cash. So playing this was sobering and at times even disheartening, but Mason doesn't see it that way. He recalled the instructions he received when he first pitched the idea. Originally, when I asked what the ask was to Dan, one of the things was, I would like this to spark joy in people. I'm like, well, how am I going to make these (laughs) very weighty, very heavy oral histories spark joy? 
And across the board, what I found interesting in the oral histories is that for all the crap that these people have been through and that they've overcome and the hurdles that they've jumped, they all have goals. Many of them have positive outlooks about achieving dreams, and that is where I latched onto. So it became less about the struggle as a hopeless thing and more of the struggle as something you have to pass through to achieve your goals. Next time on our final episode in the series, we look at some of the challenges of community partnerships and ask, where do we go from here? Education and faith are places where you can think about what's possible, about how the world might be different, about how you could do something other than just tinker at the margins. Shelter is a production of the Rutgers University, New Brunswick's public history program, the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis, the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and Colab Arts. Our editorial team includes Dan Swern, Colin Yeager, Nathan Jeremy Brink, and Kristen obrassel Colfin. Our theme music is by Dave Seaman and Carlos Vasquez. And this series was made with the generous support of the Henry Luce Foundation. Check out our website at shelternj.org to learn more about Mason's Game, Osamiri's art project, and other artistic responses to the housing crisis, as well as to read transcripts of all our oral history interviews. If you haven't already done so, we encourage you to follow or subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts in order to stay up to date. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word on social media or tell a friend. Until next time, I'm Scott Gurian. And I'm Diana Molina. Thanks for listening.